the volume. This Sessions is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. They're America's number one sportsbook for a reason, y'all. It's so easy to use. It's safe and secure. That's one of the main things for me. I don't want any BS. I love that there's no BS with FanDuel. Plus, you get your winnings fast. Now winnings are delivered in as quick as two hours. Plus, it's super fun to combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. It's awesome. So if you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with the promo code Renee, that's R-E-N-E-E, so that they know that I sent you. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, Wyoming, or West Virginia. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona 18887897777 or visit ccpg.org/chat for Connecticut 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com/rg for Colorado, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania and Virginia 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY for New York Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789 1-800-522-4700 Wyoming. Visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. Hey guys, welcome to the best of the sessions. What we have done is we've combined the best of Tuesday's episode and Thursday's episode, mashed them together to give you a beautiful little audio gift for your ear holes. We have some awesome, awesome guests on this show. Cannot thank people enough for taking the time to, to come hang out with me. Give me a little bit of their time. We give you a little bit of that. We all get to hang out and enjoy it, learn a little bit about each other. Um, so it's really cool to mash these all together and you guys can get those little abbreviated highlights of both of the interviews throughout the week. Also, of course, if you want to listen to the full lengths, you can do that. They all exist. Uh, just make sure to check out all things from the Volume Podcast Network. Like, subscribe, turn on those notifications, all that good stuff. But let's get into it. Here's the best of the sessions. Wow, nothing like a bunch of tech issues before you're about to interview your favorite wrestler in the freaking world. I love starting things off stressed out. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Are you okay now? I'm okay now. Sometimes you just got to like take a deep breath. Me and technology, we just don't always go hand in hand. And we just like we're trying to get a new mic set up, a new camera set up we're trying to make things look nice and crispy and fresh here and um listen today just wasn't our day but me and you are gonna have a hell of a hangout and that's really all that matters as far as i'm concerned that is all that matters yes it's all good um so what is going on in your life right now how's your new puppy doing i don't have a new puppy quite yet um it's not old enough to bring home when are you getting him i think nine more weeks his dad is uh 230 pounds he's gonna be a big boy you like those big, beefy dogs, huh? I do. They like to crawl on your lap and their elbows hurt really bad on your thighs. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love them. I'm really sorry that you guys lost your dog recently. That's We lost both. You did like lose them both. Three weeks of each other. Did one go because the other one wasn't there? Not to start off this interview as a total bummer, but I just know that that's something that just kind of happened for you. Well, cancer, you know, happens with the larger dogs like that a lot. They live a short, good life instead of a long, good life, right? So it's 
when you get a big dog, you have to go into that knowing that. Same thing with Danes and Rottweilers. Even Bulldogs. Bulldogs are like that big time, too. And John and I, sometimes we just like look at each other and we're like, don't even talk about it. Don't even think about it. Because like, oh, my gosh, it's just it's so upsetting. But you're right. They get to live great lives, even though they're not super long, but it can be hard. But I'm glad that you guys have that new one coming in like nine weeks. Do you have a name picked out already? I do. Beast. Beast. But he was born on my birthday, April, right? And I'm an Aries. So on his uh, AKC papers, it's going to read Aries, God of War. <laughs> Whoa. Damn. He's a really well-bred dog. We were on a wait list for a long time. Oh, I, I like that. Yeah, Blue's Blue's like one of those like real fancy bulldogs too. And oh my God, I just, I can't get enough of that dog. He's just been on like a, an insane diet. He dropped some pounds. He's looking slim and trim. He's doing big jumps and like... It's like healthy, sweet boy now. When do we get to see him again? Um, gosh, I don't know. I guess depending. I don't know what your guys. Maybe Chicago. Hey, how? What are you going to be doing? Um, with the New Japan show for uh, Forbidden Door, are you going to be doing something there? I'm not sure yet. I'll probably be coaching though, for sure. How different is it for you? I mean, I know your most of your relationships with Japanese wrestling was through um through All Japan. How different is that working with New Japan? I think the All Japan is more traditional. They went more traditional American style. And the New Japan is more of the, you know, just move after move after move. A little different. New Japan, I really never, I've been over there a couple times for them. And wrestled Muda over there. I think he was with New Japan at the time. But All Japan, man, I had a lot of fun with All Japan. It was great. You have got to do so much stuff. Like, as I was getting ready for this interview and like my wrestling relationship with you of like my fandom started with the gold dust character. That was like really a thing that like truly got me into wrestling. I thought that character was just incredible. I love the matches that you had. I love the creativity of all the things that you got to do. But as I'm prepping for this interview and going back through like the catalogs of all of the things that you've been able to do um, as Dustin Rose, as the natural, as the gold dust character, I mean, there's just so much you've been able to do and looking at your career now, the fact that you are doing the things that you are doing and having the matches that you're having is crazy. Does it feel crazy to you? Like to just be able to still be going the way that you are and, and to be able to have these matches and to have the younger talent, see guys like you and punk have matches to see the matches that you and Cody had. It feels completely different than the other place. I feel respected as a talent respected as a great worker respected as someone who is can teach can lead can do just about everything you know that's asked of him and that sticks with me and i don't want to let go of that so it's very hard so almost 34 years in the business right i'm 53 years old that's no secret to to anybody but my mind is is still saying hey let's do this but my body's starting to say Stop this fucking shit. <laughs> I bet. It takes me a lot longer to recover from just a match, but I work sporadically. And I think that prep time is, is worse when you're working less times, right? Because you go out there and you perform at 100 miles an hour and you get back and then you go to bed and the next day and then the next day you start to hurt. So everything sinks in and it lasts right now. It lasts about a week and a week and a half for me. 
Do you wish that you were doing more matches so that your body wouldn't have as much time to recover? Or do you really need to take that time to have those more sporadic matches, have that downtime to recover, let your body heal, and then set it back up for for war again? I think I've wrestled just about everybody that, you know, you could possibly put me in the ring with. The one that I really just missed the boat on was Randy Savage. But just about everybody else I've worked with, man, and it's pretty impressive, the people that I've worked with, the big names that I've worked with. Right now, for me to go, like, on a WWE schedule, you get callous, your body gets used to it again, right? So it might be again, but I have some, you know, my shoulders are pretty banged up and my knees are pretty banged up. So Tony lets me know a few days, you know, before we're going to do this or a week before. And it's like, so I get a little prep time, you know, to kind of get in the zone for it and really work out and, and do the right things that I need to do to be prepared for it. Right. What do you attribute your longevity to? I mean, you look great. I don't know what it is that you're doing, but uh, you you look really great. And you're a man that's like aging like a fine wine. Uh, so what is it? I think where it all started was when I was having my issues with drugs and alcohol. Not to be a Debbie Downer or anything, but sometimes I like telling my story, right? I love getting into a story. I mean, that's what makes people interesting to me. I, I love... You know, people have their ups and their downs and they go through their shit. And I know you've been very open about yours and you've written about it and you've talked about it. You were actually the very first person uh, when all this stuff happened with John. You were the first person that messaged me. So I, I always greatly appreciate that. So I would love to hear more of your story. So years and years ago, I had an injury to my knee first time with Shawn Michaels. Right. And this was like 96, I think. And I started taking you know, asking for a couple of Vicodins, some opioids, right? And, you know, those took the edge off and I just kept working. You tape it up and you go because back then we didn't have the, the doctors on call like we do now, right? And Vince one night, he saw me in the bathroom popping a pill and it was just me and him in the bathroom and I was painting my face. We had a conversation for about 30 minutes on why I should not do what I'm doing and get addicted to the things because he's seen it before and he's watched them come and go and die from him. He was really talking to me like a father figure. And I'm listening to him. I'm painting my face and I'm trying to respect what he's saying and all that, but I was going to do what I was going to do. So then that too led to four, 10, 20, 50. And then you have like six stints with WWE because you're, there's no accountability. I can work hard, give my, best in the ring right and then all the other stuff that's going on in my life it just takes over and the depression the drugs and that's all i want is to find my next fix my next drink my next eight ball of cocaine and there's that downward spiral then you lose side of you have a daughter that is 10 years old and you're doing this so you're not in her life for a few years which when I talk about this and my daughter, it always, always breaks me up. And it's really tough to know that, you know, you're so encompassed into taking drugs and alcohol and stealing from your parents just to find your drugs, right? I had three doctors. I had two pill ladies. I had a house paid for on acreage. I lost it all. I pawned everything that I had. And at the very, very end in like 2008, 
I lived in a connected garage, one stall garage to somebody's house that I was renting out for a hundred bucks a month. I had a little bitty Honda Civic car, still trying to find things to pawn, still trying to sell things and try to, you know, steal from my dad. Hey, I need this for a bill or whatever. That's what I mean by stealing. They would send me some money, right? And that would go straight to the pills or straight to alcohol or straight to cocaine. And in 2008, I was really at the worst, right? It was a good two years of really solid, not giving a fuck about anything or anybody, wanting to die, wanting to not feel anymore, wanting to not be around anybody anymore. I had my wife and she was with me. She wasn't an alcoholic. She wasn't a drug addict. She stuck with me, right? And she stayed beside me the whole time. And the last two years, I didn't go anywhere, you know? I didn't want to do anything. And I was up to 80 pills a day. For the last couple of years, I was up to a half a gallon of vodka every single day and an eight ball of cocaine every three days. So that's what I was taking. So the straw that kind of broke or whatever was, uh, I was laying in bed. And I was really drunk and I didn't get drunk. Okay, so something was wrong. Taking so many pills or whatever, and I was so dizzy, it wouldn't stop. The next day, same thing. Try to drink, try to take pills, more stuff to kick out of it. Nothing happened. The third day, I remember my wife, like, get up in the middle of the night. So I would take all the Vicodins and stuff and Lortaps during the day, cocaine, vodka, nonstop, and then take Xanax to come down at nighttime. They'll kill you. I was up to like eight or ten of those, the big ones. I would wake up in the middle of the night and she would look at me and I would pop two more thinking I can't sleep when I was just asleep. So the third day of that little downward rock bottom, I guess, divine intervention or something, it was three in the morning, raining outside. My dad had given me a prepaid cell phone. So I had a cell phone. It was a flip phone, but it was like, whatever. I didn't use the internet. I didn't use anything like that. So I woke up and Terrell was next to me and I say, I've had enough. And I wanted to go call my dad. So I'm really fucked up and she's trying to help me outside because there's no cell service and I have to crawl up on a hill to get one bar. And I crawled up on the hill in the mud and the rain and she's helping me and I'm stumbling and I'm crying. And I just told him, I said, um, I want you to call WWE and get me into rehab. Not that day, but the next day they got me a flight to Fort Lauderdale or West Palm. And they were really worried that I wouldn't get on the plane. I'd made my mind up, but I understand why they were worrying. I got on my first flight, loaded up, got on the, you know, the, the layover in Atlanta, loaded up and down to West Palm, pretty shit-faced. And the guy picked me up in the car service or whatever. And I was like, stop at the store, I want to get a 12-pack. So stopped at the store, I got a 12-pack, I drank about six before we got to the, the place. And I don't remember anything else. I had eight days of medical-induced detox, but I was pretty out of it the whole eight days. It was, I don't remember like going through serious withdrawals or shakes or whatever. I just remember at the two-week point, I couldn't sleep. Two weeks in, three weeks in, you see for the first time in a long time, and your parents come visit, your wife, everybody knew you were so fucked up, but you didn't know what kind of pain it caused them. Certainly didn't know what kind of pain it was causing me. We don't know when we're too far gone. There's no, hey man, I can do this. 
I can do this myself. It is impossible. But it only works when you're ready. I was ready. So I made the decision once they got me pretty cleaned out and I started seeing some things for the first time, right? In a long time, made the decision to like stick to it. And there were several things that had to happen for me to stick to this. And that was number one, I had to take care of my recovery first before my daughter, before work, before anything. So of course I'm automatically going, hey man, I need to do this with my daughter. I need to do that. I need to find a job now. I need to do this. I'm clean, whatever. I'm not, not there yet. It takes a long time. So for two years straight, I went to AA meetings and I missed maybe a handful over the two years. And that's what did it for me. When you sit in these rooms, right? And you're scared to share, you don't want to say anything, but then you see somebody that is fresh, fresh, right out of, you know, a three-day detox and they're fucked up still. And then you got people in there with 23 years of experience or 30 years of experience and they're like the leaders or whatever, but it's like, you see this person fucked up and it's like, damn, I was that bad. I was like that not too long ago, right? So Dakota's mom would call me and say, you need to come get Dakota. And I would just tell her, no, I can't. I have to do this first. I have to take care of myself. It takes some time. You make amends to all the people that you've harmed. And I think I've done most of them, I think, uh, over the years. Me and Dakota are closer than ever. And, you know, that's all I can do is say I'm sorry to her, right? It took me about a year before I could be around somebody drinking. And it still happens today. If somebody says the word cocaine, I smell it. I don't want it, though. I don't want opiates, alcohol, none of that shit. So it doesn't bother me now. And now I'm coming up on 14 years. It's a long time, but it's still one day at a time, right? And from that moment, that changed for me with my body. And it changed my mindset of, okay, I have a lot of catching up to do, and that's okay. I've lost a lot, but now I'm going to gain it back and work hard for it. And from when my dad saw me in um, rehab, the first time he said, keep stepping. And every day he would call me and we would talk a little bit, right? the end of the conversation would always be keep stepping. So that's kind of what I live. It's been a long journey to get back to where I need to be. And am I there yet? I don't know. But I think I'm pretty blessed with things that I have accomplished over the last 14 years since then. A huge comeback, have lost all that weight, have got into shape, and has stayed in shape to the best of my ability, right? There are off days that I have, but it's like, fuck, I feel fat today. How did you lose all of that weight? Like, what was that process like for you? I mean, I mean, even just like, I mean, I can always, you know, use John as the example for this, just in terms of like, when people post that photo of him, like right before he went to rehab to like, right when he came back and it's like, holy shit, night and day. And you don't really realize it when you're in it, that you're puffy and your eating habits, you know, coincide with that. All of those things that just cutting out the alcohol makes a massive difference. But what else did you do for the weight loss? When you have an addictive personality, one addiction replaces, you know, the old addictions, right? So my, my new addiction was going to the gym. Did I know anything about it? No, never really went to the gym. I just started going every day. 
and just kind of kept with it and just kept saying to myself, I'm going to get better. And I started doing the electrical and that's probably the easiest thing that I can do on my knees. But that kept me going a little bit. And if I do that and keep doing that, and then I got a personal trainer, started working with her and she's started building my body to where it's the best it's ever been for me through injuries too. And it sucks. Certain things I can't do that I have to modify, but I'm much better off than where I used to be body-wise and, and how I moved around because it's really, it's hard when you're heavier. And, you know, when I got thinner, I started doing this like a couple of spots in the ring that were really fast. And I did them for a reason. I did it for the fans to go, holy shit, this motherfucker is 53 years old and can move that fast. I tried to do a really, my, my usual fast spot with punk and I could tell I was a step off. So I've got to start thinking of how I can, I don't know, change some things up. What do you attribute the depression side of things to when you're talking about the drinking the vodka, the Mountain Dew, eating the pizza and just like in that like depression, like succubus? What, what do you think that was about? Do you know what a succubus is? Or wait, a succubus is like a, a like female. That was not the right word. <laughs> but that's. Hey, it sounded really good. I know what you meant. As soon as I said it, I was like, that's not the right word, but it sounds like it could, it sounds like the thing that I was trying to say, but it's not the right word. A succubus is like a, it's like an evil woman, isn't it? It's a female that sucks your soul. Maybe not that kind of thing, but still that dark kind of hole. I think early on when, when I was growing up, dad left. My mom raised me, right? Me and my sister, Kristen, we saw dad twice a year if that christmas time summer in the meantime my mom is working two or three jobs trying to you know keep us fed and uh it wasn't an easy upbringing it was difficult for her and of course her kids are going to make it more difficult on her right she married a couple of really bad husbands and me and my sister were privy to a lot of physical abuse and we're, you know, we're just young. We're in the hall, you know, I'm just got my arm around my little sister and we're just cradled there and we're just trying to hope mom doesn't die. And went through a couple of, uh, you know, husbands that were like that, both of them were. So that kind of, I guess, does something to kids. You know, the upbringing was um, very depressing. Yeah. Childhood stuff is just like that. Just there's no way to just shake that stuff off. And as much as you can like move on and you become an adult and you feel like you're not that kid anymore, that stuff just sticks around no matter what. What is your, I guess, feelings and like relationship that other people have with your dad, whether it's fans, whether it's peers. I mean, he was somebody that just obviously, you know, he's Dusty Rhodes. Everybody loves Dusty Rhodes. Um, but what is what is like your reaction to, to the people that love him and the people that got to work with him and spent time with him, especially, you know, especially a lot of the talent that came up through NXT that he really helped shape a lot of those people's careers. When he was home, he never talked to business ever. He left it at the office, right? So we got him at home fully, whether he was tired or not, and sit down and watch baseball or watch a Western movie with him. Um, that's what we did, right? We'd go out to eat, stuff like that. 
and just have normal conversations. When he left to go to work and when I first started seeing it, when I worked for him, it's very different, very professional, something I haven't like dealt with yet in life, right? And he was telling me, you need to do this, you need to do that. And even when something's really good, you still want it from your father that you did an awesome job, right? And he was still saying, well, I've done this, I would have done that early on. And then as we got later and into like the NXT days you're talking about with dad and him helping and mentoring and coaching and doing all the, the wonderful things, people grow. And I watched him grow early in the business and being in control of things, stepping away, going to work for another man, right? And Vince and taking something that was given him as who knows if it was a rib or not with the polka dots. So he took that, right? And he did the very best good because that time it was financial. And then he goes on from there and he does great things. And then I come into the picture and we start working together. And we get to I get to tag with him at WCW. I get to tag with him a couple more places, right? It's really cool that I got to work in the ring with my dad against like Flair. Or, and it was so cool. So 80s stuff for me was really yeah. the best stuff. And then you grow. Watched him grow into the dusty stuff with, with the polka dots and then the stuff with me and Cody and, you know, um, back together again, all three of us. And then him NXT and kind of finishing out there and watching, you know, and going to several of his promo classes with like Charlotte and all, you know, Sasha and all the girls there. Young, right? Very passionate and hungry for the business. And he would get up there and he would preach his thing, man. He would talk like Dusty Talks and everybody loved him. It was a pretty special thing to see. He touched everybody. I mean, my moments of being able to, to work and watch him and I used to sit behind him in all the production meetings and just to like see his brain work, to see his relationships with everybody else that was working there. I mean, you think of all the people in those production meetings from Hunter to Michael Hayes, Shawn Michaels being in there, you know, just being able to see those relationships and to see your dad and the way that he was able to help shape so many of like the huge stars today. It's, it's so impressive to see. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's just the relationships that I come back to that um, everyone loved him. Another thing that I saw from dad was uh, he never had a crossword for like anybody in the business, man. I mean, he never, and I have a bad habit about that, right? I've gotten a bad habit about saying things that I don't need to say just to myself or to my wife, right? But it's still like, I'm at home. I don't need to say or think these things. He was really a good man. And... He did things right there at the end, the best that he possibly could, and you could see it. And that's why all the kids talk about him today, right? Because they got that firsthand. They got the best, probably the best, dusty version of his life. What do you think your dad would have thought of Cody's promo on Monday Night Raw when he showed back up on you the know, WWE? I, I knew dad always wanted us to be happy. and. He would have his suggestions and things like that and, you know, try to lead us in the right way. But ultimately, these are our, our decisions, right? And money's money. And I would always say, take the money. Always say, take the money. And I know just me watching it in his first promo and seeing dad up there, you know, on the screen and 
talking about him. And, and Cody's very, very passionate about his promos, about every single word that he's going to say, which is very important, right? And especially for that first one, which was very important. You're making a huge impact on a lot of people. First time you've been back in years. And he did. And um, I know Dad would be happy. He's sitting in the rafters. That's where I pictured him when me and Cody wrestled at double or nothing, right? And I've talked about this a lot over the last couple of years. Having an opportunity to work with my brother and not knowing what to expect with an AEW audience. Had no idea if I was going to get any reaction at all. And just the fact that we went out there and I got a reaction. And the match was like just for me and him perfect. It was a long time coming that we weren't allowed in WWE to do. Stardust, not gold dust, you know. I mean, just serious brother versus brother. And it's hard to do. It's hard to do as you look at all the brother versus brothers. There's nothing good to come from them, right? I'll never do it again. I'll never wrestle him again. It did a lot to me that night. When WWE, right, when I left there, I was kind of like, oh, God, what do I do? But I was tired. And I lost my passion. And that night, I recaptured it. And it was a very special night, probably one, probably the, the most special night I've had so far in the business. Um, it's just the stars aligned. Everything was perfect for it. It was story-driven. It was compelling. It's everything you possibly want from an audience to enjoy and all the emotions, crying, happy. Bleeding everywhere. Well, that was a little excessive that night. <laughs> a little bit. Um, what was... Uh... Not, I don't have to ask the conversations you guys have, but I guess just like your reaction to Cody going back to uh, WWE after what he had been able to create at AEW. I was happy for him, but I was also, you know, I missed him already and I miss him um, being there, but I know he's, he's young and, you know, let's go, go do your thing. So I'm very happy for him. And I'm like, Hey man, the more power to you, go get that title and win it all and do your stuff. I don't have that much time left here with you, but there's a few things I still really want to talk to you about. Um, and one of them, of course, has to be the gold dust character. The reason why I love professional wrestling is because of the gold dust character. What is uh, what are your feelings about the gold dust character? Gold dust character over years has come a long way um, and has grown to be loved and adorned by fans all over. And I couldn't be a heel anymore. But it's very hard at the beginning. Vince gave me full reins with it. You know, he would pipe in his suggestions. He was very hands-on. He was like my acting coach to bring this voice to fruition, to bring this certain rub that I do or whatever it is, just being there constantly and directing me and said, you got this one better. I know you can do this. And he, he would tell me how to do it. And I would do it and say, yes, that's good. That's good. And so I kind of learned, okay, this is the way he likes it. So Let's see how it does with the crowd and things like that. And for the first six months, man, Goldust was really tough because he's a heel, number one, which I hadn't been. And he's a character. And he's a very far away character from anything that I do in life. Why do you think Vince thought that you were the perfect person to do this Goldust character? Because, yeah, you are very far off of this Goldust character. I wonder why he thought that you were the guy to pull this off. So looking at it right now and laughing at it because it, it could have been a rip. But I do have one thing to say about like when me and dad wrestled Ted DiBiase and Virgil, 
1990, that was my first WWF experience, right? And the Royal Rumble. That night, Dad left to Florida. And I talked to Dad. I said, can I ask for my release too? We're under really contracts back then. It was different back then, right? So I went to ask him. And he said, of course, yes, you can. And then he grabbed Dad aside. And Dad told me this years later. And he said, you take him now, but I'm going to bring him back and make him a star. So there's little things that, okay, could this be a rib or is it a serious thing? And he sees something in this character. I don't know. But it took me a long time to figure that shit out. And Sabio Vega was the one who coaxed it out of me with the rubbing on his body and shit. And that shit worked like that. <laughs> yeah. Football fans, check out the Three and Out podcast with John Middlecoff only on the Volume Podcast Network. John brings his unique perspective as an ex-NFL scout to the volume to break down all the news around the NFL and college football. Whether you're looking for game predictions, coaching searches, the ins and outs of the NFL front office, even an occasional golf tip, John has you covered. Download 3 and Out with John Middlecoff only on the Volume Podcast Network. I was getting ready for this interview and I was like, I have a feeling that Laura's going to be wearing a hat. So I'm also going to wear a hat because who wants to do their hair? A, that's precisely why I did it. Because I literally this morning, I jumped out of the shower, didn't do a thing to my hair. But the other thing is I have a disproportionately big forehead and it's really just (laughs) accentuated on these on these (laughs) Zoom angles. So you'll rarely see a video of me doing a Zoom call without a hat on. You know what? I just got this like fancy new camera and I watch it back. I'm like, oh, this camera does for sure add like 10 pounds or it's like it's too, you know, when like the camera's too fancy. You're like, okay, can we maybe slap a filter on and maybe we don't need to see me that well? Let's calm down. That's how I felt when the UFC changed uh, their cameras. Oh, my God. For social media. And I was like, guys, we don't we don't need 80K or whatever this is at this point. I like me a little fuzzy. Yeah. Give me like that old Joan Rivers. Let's Vaseline the lens. Let's give me that up light. Help a girl out. That is really stressful because those cameras, which are like, obviously, they're beautiful when you're watching the action, when you're watching the walkout, all that stuff. They look great. Do not shoot me on that. No, no. And as I inch very, very close toward 40 as a woman in television, I'm more and more and more and more and more more aware of the God of lighting. I don't know if this is like a good conversation or not, but what are the things when you watch back that you're like, oh my God, this is the thing that drives me nuts. Do you have something? There's a laundry list. Like sometimes the way I stand or like, how I'll choose to hold my hands in a certain situation. Like, what was I doing? You know, what would kill me is when I'd be doing interviews and like I'm in WWE and everyone's gigantic, but I would, they usually wanted me like in like behind the wrestler. So they look even bigger. But if I'm talking to somebody and I'm interviewing them from like, you know, and my arms coming across me and your arm is pressed against your body. I'm like, what is happening here? So on the desk, if they put me on the end, and I won't say anything, but I'm in my mind, I'm like, oh, no, no, put me farther no. back. I don't want to look larger. Yes. Like You don't need to look like you're the same size as Daniel Cormier. No. And I already, you know, I always wear heels because I'm built like a wiener dog. Like I have, 
the longest torso and the shortest leg. So I'm always in heels and people are constantly like, how tall are you? Like 5'10"? And what do you weigh? Like 150? I'm like, no, that's just the camera doing that. I'm really kind of petite to be honest. Oh my God. That, yeah, we would sit at this desk and luckily I would always be at like the corner of the desk. So the other dudes are built, you know, they're out on the sides and then the cameras hit them first. So they look gigantic. I am so petite, tucked back in the corner. I'm like, thank God, let's keep that coming. Oh, this is this is the life of a female broadcaster in sports, you guys. Well, I guess just kind of everything. If you're working on like a, a show that's all women, I guess you'd be like, well, who's got the shit under the stick that's got to go on the end of the exactly. desk? <laughs> exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. And I don't think these are conversations that the uh, that the guys are having. They're not. And yeah, I'm like, I don't know if this is like a poo-pooed conversation. Like you guys are women in sports and you should not be, you know, you, you think you like don't want to have these conversations, but like legit, these are the things that we're thinking about sometimes. You know, it is what it is. They are. And, and there are things that fans love to point out to us as well. Another favorite, apparently like my eyebrows are not symmetrical, which they just aren't. Like that's how God put them on my face. But our poor makeup artist who is amazing and like the best makeup artist on the planet get so much grief for my eyebrows. I'm like, guys, that's just the heavens above chose to put them on my face that way. They, they are in fact, my eyebrows. They're not like drawn on and they're just, they're just like that. I always <laughs> love doing like a pretty nude makeup look, but a, a bright red lip. Love that look. And it, it doesn't seem like it's a lot of makeup, but working with so many dudes, like, why do you have on so much makeup? I'm like, I don't. I just have on a red lip. Everything else is pared down. You need to calm down. Details. Oh, my gosh. It's all in the details. It's ridiculous. Well, hey, I'm really glad that we got you on the show. You have been on my list for a while. Ever since you um, came on with me and Misha when we were doing a little throwing down, I was like, I need, like, more than just the 15 minutes with Laura Sanko so that we can shoot the shit. I feel like we're kind of cut from the same cloth. It's so funny that you say that because after we did that one interview, I literally went away. I'm like, I want to hang out with her. I really want to <laughs> yes. hang out with her and not just, I mean, this is, this is a good second choice, but I'm like, I wish I was yeah. here. I feel like we would be yeah. friends. Oh my God. We could be like, yeah, cool mom friends are just like smashing beers at the park. Exactly. Could we do that? Exactly. That would be great. <laughs> um, okay. So as I was setting this up, you sent me your phone number, you DM me your phone number and I messaged you and I was like, mm, she's not getting back to me. And then realized, oh, it's because I fully messaged the wrong number. Um, that person still never responded to me anyway. So I guess they also were not interested in coming on the podcast. Oh, that's disappointing. I know it could have been, it could have been a fun rogue one. Um, but you said that you have a story of this, of trying to, what happened? There's a guy at the UFC who's like Dana's right-hand person in terms of social media there's also Eric Nixick from Extreme Couture, who I work with quite a bit when I'm in Vegas. I'm like always hitting up like, hey, can we hit pads or just shooting the shit and figuring out, you know, what's going on with the spiders, that type of stuff. And they're both Eric and my phone and just Eric, no last name. Well, that was my initial problem is like I hadn't really bothered, I guess, to put a last. I think I had Eric's Nixick's last name in there, but maybe not the other Eric. Anyway, um, I had just come from working out with. Nick sick. And like during the workout, I was starting to not feel good. And I, I felt like such a pussy. We need to call this quits. Cause like something's happening in my tummy right now. That's not good. So I go back to my hotel, the things that happened, happened. <laughs> and being the, like the, the dude chick that I am, I texted Eric and I was like, I was like, yeah, just fucking like blew up my hotel room, <laughs> like literally pissing out 
my, I think I even typed like pissing out my ass and I sent it to him and Eric, Dana's guy texts back. He's like, wow, hope you feel better by tomorrow. Um, can I get you anything? And I was like, oh, a Gatorade God. would be great. Thanks. Just out of nowhere, I'm texting this guy about my, my, you know, tummy trouble and my bowel movements, apparently. Yeah, I definitely message the wrong people sometimes. It's funny. My husband's like, how? I don't understand how you do that. I've never got myself like in like a sticky situation. But yeah, there's definitely times, especially if you're like talking a little shit to be like, better make sure this is going to the right person. Not that I ever do that. I would never. Or those open mics when you're mic'd up and you forget you're mic'd up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was one thing at WWE that was really great. They'd always kind of like remind you, like, the mics are hot, guys. Let's not uh, let's be a little careful here about what we're talking about. Yeah, you forget that, like, 30 people in a truck can hear everything you're doing and saying. Oh, to think of the thing. It hasn't happened to me. Thank God. I'm knocking on wood over here, but I know people it has happened to. I'm like, oh. I'm sure it's happened to me before, for sure. I mean, whether someone just, like, overheard a conversation or... If I'm like have on like a lav mic and I'm like, oh, I just got to run to the bathroom yeah. and didn't like shut it off and somebody, you know, here's. Oh, that's for sure happened. I don't even worry about that anymore. I think they're probably pretty used. That's on audio. You should shut it off when you start to hear the, the buttons coming undone. But hey, that's up to you. Okay, let's talk a little you here. How did you get in to MMA? Petite, sweet, Laura. You were Adam weight, yeah? Yeah, I fought at 105. Um, wow. I, haven't, I haven't seen 105 in a few years. I haven't seen 105 since I was a preteen, probably. <laughs> yeah, I'm five, five. I weigh like 120 walking around now. Um, when I was growing up, I did karate, but I didn't do it in an overly competitive sense. I wasn't like going to tournaments every week or anything like that. I was just taking classes consistently and working my way up the belt structure. I really liked that. Um, and then I went through like a really difficult personal time right after college. I got married stupidly young. And it was an absolute disaster. And I was divorced six months later after I got married. I came from a really conservative Christian upbringing. That's the one thing you're not supposed to fuck up. And then I did. And so anyway, I just needed like, man, I needed to put my mind somewhere else other than like where it was inside my own head, feeling just like a piece of crap human being. I really had never been an athlete, really had never even worked out consistently other than doing the karate. Um, So I joined a local gym. And I kept seeing these guys like doing martial arts in the corner and grappling and all this stuff. And I had been a fan of MMA beforehand and of course grew up in the martial arts. So it wasn't like entirely alien to me, but I could tell it wasn't like a formal class. It was just two guys getting together. And I finally worked up the courage one day and I walked over and I was like, Hey, do you like offer lessons or is there any way I can jump in with you guys? I'd love, I would love to learn. I'm a man. I would love to learn jujitsu. And, and they basically laughed at me. And continued to laugh at me for like the next few months. But I would I would find myself like doing my sets over by them and just like watching. And then I think I was just persistent enough. And it turned out that uh, I didn't really know who he was at the time. But it was a guy named Rob Kimmins who was one of the first UFC fighters uh, out of the Kansas City area. So he was kind of a OG of like truly hitting the top of the top uh, in yeah. MMA. He didn't... Uh, I don't know that he accomplished like tons in the UFC, but he was in the UFC, which at the time was a huge, huge deal. So fast forward and they finally kind of like accept me. And it really just ends up being Rob, myself, and maybe one other person. And we're like training four hours a day 
And so I, I got a really intensive, almost like one-on-one, they were able to really help me and my technique Cause sometimes I think when you show up at a big class, like you spend a good year, not really getting noticed and you're probably doing most of the things wrong. And the instructor is focused on the real fighters as he should be, or she should be. So I I was lucky that I didn't have to kind of go through that process. And it really sort of, you know, ramped up my ability to, to get into the sport. I just, I loved it, loved it immediately. I had, I had loved watching it for years and then doing it as I, as I suspected was even better. What was it that you loved about it so much? We all know exercise is good for mental health, but lifting weights, running, um, I could put lots of things in that category. I'm still up in my head as I'm doing it. Even if I have music on, I'm still like up here overanalyzing my life and whatever. MMA and jujitsu and probably a few other things as well. You, you have to be so in the moment that even if it's just for that one hour of rolling or one hour of sparring, whatever it is, you can't think about anything else. And it's like I could feel the chemicals in my brain beginning to write themselves. That's what I loved about what it did for me in terms of like what I loved about the sport. I've just always been really scrappy and I've always kind of had, uh, I don't want to say a chip on my shoulder, but like I grew up with an older brother and I was, I was like the little mascot of the group. It would be him and like five of his guy friends and he's four years older than I am. And then me tagging along, always looking to keep up, always looking to prove myself like, oh, you guys are going to bike three miles today. I can do that. You know, you guys are going to go climb this pile of dirt. I'll, I'll do it too. You know, that's my whole life has been like, oh no, no, I can do that. I can keep up with the guys. Like I got this. So you're wrestling around, you're rising the ranks. When did the decision to go pro? I really had no intention of fighting at all. I just liked the training, but then the gym where I was going, um, cause eventually those guys at the workout gym transitioned me to real MMA gym. Um, and it's the same gym I've been a part of since everyone there fought. So it was always like, you know, we see you working so hard in here. You got to at least go do one amateur fight to tell your grandkids about yada, yada. And of course I fell in love with that. I made my first, my first fight, the first half of it, I got completely, I got my ass kicked, but then I, I turned the tables and made the girl verbally tap to strikes, which is like the best feeling in the whole world. So I was fully addicted after that, but it was such a weird time in MMA because women's MMA was still very much like this freak show sideshow thing that they would just sort of like slap onto male MMA cards. I just kind of ran out of like people to fight, especially at 105, which still isn't even in the UFC. It's just, it was difficult. I was scouring um, like forums. I was stalking girls on Facebook, trying to figure out where I could, where I could fight people. But then Invicta came along. So when I saw that Invicta was there and they could make the fights happen. And I just had to show up and do it. That was the decision to go pro because I actually, for the period of time, I had a lot of amateur experience compared to um, a lot of women at that time. I had probably been ready to go pro for a while. It's just, I didn't really know what that looked like. But then when Invicta came along, you know, it was really exciting times because, and I remember going to their first show. It was incredible. It was like one of the best MMA shows I've ever seen in my life because every good female fighter was on that card. And it was like, they all knew this is my chance to show everybody to show the UFC, whatever, what y'all are missing out on. And it was epic. It was so good. That was still during the time when, uh, when Dana said that women weren't going to fight in UFC. Correct. It was right around, I think when Invictus started, um, it probably was right around the time when he met Rhonda, if I'm doing my math correct. So she was having, she was tearing through strike force and doing really well. And I I'm sure starting to 
raise a few eyebrows like, oh, this is interesting, you know, and then um, I would love to know when that fateful dinner was that we always hear about. Wouldn't you love to have like a recording of how that actually went? We need Amber Heard there with her recording devices. Yes. <laughs> that trial is insane. <laughs> I can't stop watching I can't it. Either. I know it's nuts. It I is crazy. Either. But I wish I wish Rhonda would like relive the conversation. And I want to know if it was like her, I don't want to say begging, but like having to like really plead. I get the sense it was more just her because it seems like it was her as a person just walking out and be like, listen. I'm good business. You want to be in this business? Trust me. I will not let you down and I'll show you what you're doing. And like, oh, how amazing. Yeah, I feel like Rhonda is so no bullshit and like such a straight shooter that I imagine, yeah, her going in with like whatever her team was at the time being like, this is money. You want to make some more money. And we're also like just making waves. How crazy is it too to think of like that time, like with what Invicta was doing to... Now seeing where the women are at in such a short period of time, to be able to really see it before our very eyes, you see the women main eventing, co-main eventing, like really getting like the machine behind them and making big stars. It's really cool to see the sport grow. What is it like for you um, now even being on like the broadcast side of it and being able to witness it all? It's amazing. It's, I mean, it's genuinely amazing. And Misha is such a great example. Cause I remember I met Misha, I want to say 2009, maybe. And, uh, you know, she was, I don't, it might've been like pre-strike force for her or early strike force, but regardless, like none of us were on the map yet. And frankly, there wasn't really, this is what I try to explain to people like who, don't understand how real my passion is for the sport because they haven't seen me fight. Like, so there's always this like, yeah, but did she, um, I, I was doing this purely for the love of it because there was no end game when I was doing it. There was no, Oh, you can get rich. Oh, you can have a career. Oh, you can become famous. That didn't exist. It was not a possibility for me. And so me falling in love with the sport was just genuinely about the sport and its athletes and, and what MMA did to my soul when I would do it. So to see it grow into what it's become is, man, I'm just so like, I don't know the right word, lucky, blessed, honored, all of those things at once to be able to be a part of it in a different way now, especially when we're talking about women. There are so few mainstream sports, and honestly, I'm going to say MMA is the only one, where women are truly presented on the same level, on the same platform as their male counterparts are. But I'll tell you the difference between MMA and every other sport like that. In MMA, the women train with the men every day. And so there is an inherent respect that's built in day-to-day in the gym. And like the period of time when I was doing it, that's what we were fighting for. It was less about like fame and money and and having some amazing record. It was like, no, I'm going to show up at this gym. You're going to look at me like I'm crazy. You're going to probably haze me for the first couple of months. And then I'm going to survive it. And I'm going to be here and I'm going to try to outwork everybody else in this room so that you know what I'm about. And it really was just that. Is there a part of you that's like a little like annoyed or frustrated that you couldn't be a part on the physical side of things of what's happening now? Yeah. 
I'd be lying if I said I didn't have it. You know, Paige Van Zant and I debuted on the same on the same card on the same night. We both got wins, both got finishes. And so like I know that if there had been an atom weight division in the UFC, like I I know that I could have gone on to have a solid career in the UFC. Like I have there's no doubt in my mind. In fact, I'm like probably my biggest thing. What's funny to me is like there's not that much footage out, out there of me fighting and I'm so much better than the footage that does exist that it's really that's the irritating part because my growth as a fighter really happened after I quit competing actively and so there's definitely a part of me that wants to get back to some form of competition just to like prove to people that I'm I'm about that life. So if you were to fight at say strawweight, who would you want to fight? I don't think I would fight at strawweight even now that's the thing like I'm not really built to compete with those women because they walk yeah. around at like, you know, 130 135. But in a pretend world, who would I want to fight? That's a good question. Probably another grappler. I was always much better at the grappling arts than, but my striking is a lot better than like I showed in my fight. That's for sure. Well, what do you think about what we just saw? I know you were just working UFC 274 with what happened between Rose Namajunas and Carla Esparza, because that was, um, you know, pretty controversial. And for Carla to walk away as a new strawweight champion uh, with not much happening during that fight. What was your takeaway from that? Well, it was definitely frustrating to watch as a fan. And there's a parallel, I guess, to be drawn. I'm sure you felt this at times too. It's almost like there's more pressure um, on women to like perform because there's fewer opportunities. There's more judgment. Anyone that would be talking shit or thinking negatively was just given reason, which sucks. Yeah, exactly. Now, have there been crappy male fights? Absolutely. I mean, I think they were rattling them off during the broadcast. You know, Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis certainly comes to mind for me, you know, and, and it was on par with that. I don't think any, I don't think either of them is proud of it. I think that when you watch the fight, you can see a probably better fighter in Rose Namajunas. She took Carla down with ease when she finally decided that she was going to. She did a great job of defending Carla's takedowns, but Carla was tenacious in the moments that she was trying to be. So I, I do think that Rose is probably the more complete fighter, but Carla won on the judges' scorecards. And I think she won that fight rightfully so because we don't score the fight as a whole. We score it round by round. And there is a criteria for how you score round. And I don't disagree with the way that it was scored. It just sucks. Something that you said that I find interesting, and I think this definitely applies to female broadcasters as well, is, you know, if you're working with, you know, a male or there's other men in broadcasting that maybe get a fact wrong or mispronounce somebody's name or something like that, it's like, it, nobody gives a shit. If I were to do it or you were to do it, we would be burned. Oh my God, would the internet ever explode? There is that pressure on women. I mean, and, and really in any spotlight to be perfect. You cannot waver. You cannot have the errors because we're just judged in a far different way. Have you felt that as a broadcaster? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Even more so in the situation that I'm trying to like put myself in, right? So as you know, in broadcasting, there are certain lanes. There's like the host lane, the reporter lane, the play-by-play -play lane. And those people tend to be the more seasoned, true broadcasters. And then you have the analysts and the color commentators who tend to come up through the sport and are the ones with the hands-on knowledge. And what's difficult about what I'm trying to do and what I'm doing is 
jump lanes. And it's never been done before in MMA where you've had a reporter that's like, no, no, all of a sudden I'm worthy of having an opinion and you should listen. So there's a lot of pressure when I'm calling fights on the contender series next to Daniel Cormier. And he has this inherent, as he has earned inherent credibility because you can go on the internet and see his fights. And we we've seen the belts around his waist. And then there's me (laughs) who does not have the inherent credibility. So the credibility I've had to scrape and claw for every iota of it that I have been able to garner so far. And that's probably the toughest part of it is knowing that one little slip up takes a huge chunk out of that. It's just a mistake. And we all make mistakes. We all know we make mistakes. But I can assure you that if Laura Sanko on her first UFC broadcast confuses an anaconda for a Darce, I'm going to feed into every stereotype that I hear about myself on the internet. God, the pressures are fucking real, man. I always tried not to think about those things when I was going out and broadcasting. And, um, you know, I think there's definitely a a gift to the art of being able to laugh at yourself or be like, oh, whoops, I I meant blah, 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 whatever. Or honestly, even having a broadcast partner that knows you well enough and trusts the situation well enough to even point stuff like that out so that you can have a conversation about it instead of glossing over and being like, oh my God, there was this glaring error and we're just moving past it to like try not to make you feel bad or to not draw more attention to it. Or like sometimes I would prefer to just be like, can we just talk about the weird thing that just happened and we'll just fix it and we'll move on from that. But yeah, I know those pressures can just be uh, so insane. It's such a weird, I'm sure you got this too. It's such a weird catch 22. It's like on one hand, there's pressure to look a certain way. And on the other hand, if you do look a certain way, there's no possible way that you could know what you're talking about. Yeah. What a double-edged sword that is, huh? It's very, very strange. And I love to remind like the fans that are like, well, she had, you know, whatever she had, like eight, you know, six amateur fights and one pro fight. Like what the fuck does she know? And I want to be like, well, that is six more fights than Greg Jackson had. And that is six more fights than Eric Nixick had. And are you going to question those coaches on what they know about MMA, like the fans forget that there are actually a host of experts and they are real experts within the MMA world that haven't fought once. (laughs) That's like, I mean, shit, look at Stephen A. Smith. I don't even know what that dude makes, but it is like a lot, a lot, a lot of cash. And, you know, he gets paid to have his opinions, to be his personality and all of those things. But, but for women, it is just, yeah, it is really hard to, to come by and hard to kind of it's just, it's just a rough thing to try to navigate. But I think once you're in there, I mean, I, I think you do a awesome, beautiful job with what you do. And um, so when you were moving from, to, from being a fighter into broadcasting, how did that come about? Was that something that you wanted to do or did somebody else kind of say, hey, you're a good speaker. Do you want to try this? Yeah, no, it just kind of happened. Um, I was in camp for my next fight and I ended up getting pregnant. And so I Uh, When I told Invicta, I was like, hey, can't do this fight. So sorry. Um, I was obviously going to be on the shelf for a little while. And Shannon Knapp, who owned Invicta at the time, called me up and she said, hey, what would you think about doing an interview? Uh, We don't really have someone that does that on the team. And we've got Marluce Kuman coming in town and she's a legend. And we want to do like a sideline little piece with her. And I said, yeah, I mean, I can do that. But like, I've never I've never held a microphone before. I've never interviewed someone before. I've never even looked at a camera before. So sure, I can try it. But yeah, that's, that was the beginning. And then, then they kind of moved me into doing the post-fight interviews live, which that's a, that's a crazy jump when you think about it, because, you know, I didn't have, like, I 
had no training on how to do it, what the right format is, where you stand, like how you keep them from moving around and like, oh my God, that can be rough. Stay on your spot. Stop moving around. All of the little things that I just kind of, I really had to learn on the fly on live television, which makes for some really interesting uh, clips, I'm sure that people can find on Fight Pass. That being said, I'm really not a believer in broadcast school. I never went to it. I just kind of cut my teeth figuring out what works and what didn't work. Granted, I got to do this on a much smaller scale and continue to kind of grow as I went, thank God. Um, But yeah, I mean, sometimes you see people that come out of a broadcasting school and they want to be so smooth and so polished and all of those really professional things that do make a broadcaster a great broadcaster. But I think in terms of fans being able to connect to you and they're like, oh, you're a person doing this thing and I like you and I can see who you are. You're not hiding behind all of these skills that you've honed while you're uh, in college or whatever. So yeah, I think being able to kind of jump in there and figure it out, it's kind of almost like, I always think it's better. I wouldn't do it any other way. And I think that maybe that's the one thing I've really been able to communicate as I've you know, navigated all of these many different jobs I do uh, for the UFC and for other organizations is just at the end of the day, I feel like the fans can tell that I'm a real fan, like a real fan. I didn't go to school and then fall in love with MMA. Like I've been, I've been here. I've been you guys, you know, I've been the fan and I've just sort of worked myself into this position. So kind of the same way, I think the special sauce that Joe Rogan brings to the broadcast is, I mean, yeah, he's smooth and he's personable, but really at the end of the day, it's like, he's just so infectious in terms of how much he loves the sport and the moments in the sport and obviously knows his stuff as well. So has he given you any little nuggets of wisdom along the way? He's an interesting guy because he's such a huge, huge star now that a lot like Dana, he kind of just like zooms in the building, does his thing and then zooms right out. I've wondered that. It's funny. I saw Megan Olivia posted a picture with like her and the the whole gang from 274. And I was like, yeah, I wonder like, is Rogan just there like hanging out with the guys like cage side before the event starts and they're going over their notes or like. For a few minutes, for a few minutes, but I think it's relatively quick, but I had a really nice conversation with uh, Joe last summer. And, you know, to be honest, I, I wasn't really sure if he even really knew who I I guess maybe I thought he would kind of know who I was, but we had never really had a long interaction before, just interactions and passing. And just so happened that we kind of got stuck behind stage waiting for Connor to make it to the weigh-ins and had a really nice conversation. And man, it just, it meant a lot. He's like, I didn't realize he knew what I was trying to do to be, you know, to be the first female color commentator. And there's always a little trepidation because it's like, there's part of me that is, in my head wondering, like, is he sitting there thinking, oh, darling, you think you can do what I do? That's adorable. You know, like the insecure part of me assumes that that's what he's thinking, but that wasn't it at all. And he was incredibly gracious. And he said, listen, they're going to, there's going to be a lot of people that tell you that you can't do it. But he's like, I didn't have any fights and look at me. He said, you're killing it. And uh, I'm, he said, he said, you know, I hope we get to call fights together one day. So it was really, it meant a lot. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, guys. Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed the week, enjoyed the best of the sessions. You guys can hear the full-length interviews um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just uh, download them, give them a listen, give them a like, a review. And if you want to see what you're hearing, head on over to my YouTube page. Just search Renee Paquette. It's all up there, and you can see us talking 
having this interview, having a hangout, it's all up on there. Um, and that's been like a really great, cool, growing community. So uh, I'm really enjoying the hangouts on the YouTube as well. So we can see you guys over there. And jump in the comment section, you know. Jump in, chime in, leave a comment. Uh, we like filtering through them all, reading about them. Maybe even like, I don't know, some constructive criticism if you had it. We're all ears. God, did I open up a can of worms by saying that? I don't know. Be nice. Be cool in there. This has been The Sessions.